Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm Jeremy. This is a weekly history podcast that deep dives into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. So beautiful and weird. Alright, so this week, presidential trivia is a little different. So instead of asking you, like, about a specific president, this week's question is, how many presidents died while in office? Mm. Four? Good guess. It's wrong, but it's a good guess. Dang. So the answer will be at the end of this episode. Who, like, died permanently? Or maybe, like, they were, like, what about, like, people, presidents who, like, died died permanently. (laughs) (laughs) What about presidents who, like, died and then were brought back to life? Did we have any of those? I don't know. I don't think I'm aware like of any of those. Or something, you know, cardiac arrest. Uh, no, these were like died permanently. In office. Like, like dead, dead. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph Medicine Crow was born near Lodge Grass, Montana on mm. October 27th, 1913, as a member of the Crow Nation Whistling Water Clan to his parents, Leo Medicine Crow and Amy Yellowtail. His crow name was Winterman. Joe's father died in 1915, but Joe had a large family that helped raise him, and he would take turns staying with different relatives. Hmm. It's kind of, you know, the whole tribe is kind of one big family, and if anybody he was, like, even remotely kind of related to, Mm -hmm. or in some way, he usually called them grandma and grandpa, or even mom and dad, and he would go stay with them a few months at a time. Right. Just kind of move around. Nice. He said he was a troublemaker, so he would wear out his welcome pretty quick, but everybody (laughs) still loved him, and he was welcome back after a while. Sure, sure. (laughs) Sometimes he would stay with his father's parents, Chief Medicine Crow and Medicine Sheep. Chief Medicine Crow was both a war chief and a medicine man who taught Joe that to become a war chief in the Crow Nation, you had to complete four coups or tasks. Right. Lead a successful war party, steal an enemy's weapon... Perform a counting cue, which means touch your enemy non-fatally and then escaping unharmed yourself, and steal an enemy's horse. Joe also grew up listening to war stories from his grandmother's brother, White Man Runzim, who was a scout for George Armstrong Custer before the Battle of Little Bighorn. The Crow were actually... Pretty uh, friendly with They the- aligned with the U.S. government quite a bit during right. the Plains Wars, just because they fought with the Sioux a lot. Right. And so Custer's, you know, last stand was against primarily the Lakota Sioux. And so the Crow helped him kind of scout before the battle. When he was around six or seven years old, Joe's maternal grandfather, Yellowtail, started to train Joe to become a warrior. Yeah. During the winter, he was made to go outside and run around the snow-covered plains without any shoes on. When he got used to that... Then his grandfather would make him run outside with no clothes on. And then after he got used to that, he made him run outside really far with no clothes on and then roll back to the house oh, just man. so that he could harden his body against the elements. What was that episode we did about the guy who ran? Which one? He kept There's, running across the plains naked. That's uh, John Coulter. Yeah. When he ran across. Yeah. 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 That's what I just think of. Yeah. Except for his was out of necessity because he kept getting attacked. Yeah, that was because people kept stealing his stealing clothes. his clothes. Like yeah. this guy's like just training, training. as yeah. a child. Yeah. yeah, 
cue montage music. Right. <laughs> ba -da -ba. <laughs> And I wonder if it had something to do with him being named Winterman, that his grandfather was, like, stealing him against, like, the winter weather. Right. Joe's grandfather would also make Joe take a cold bath every single morning. It was part of his grandfather's, like, daily regimen that was like, it's good for you to take a cold bath oh, every man. single morning. It's good for your body. I mean, there's something to be said about splashing some, like, cold water on your face. Yeah. But a cold bath... So, and like in the summer, that meant just jumping in the river. Mm -hmm. In the winter, that meant that Joe's grandfather would cut holes in the ice that covered the Little Horn River to let his horses drink. And then Joe would have to jump in the ice hole after the horses were done drinking. Oh, so, gosh. cold. Yeah. Joe would spend his summers catching wild colts and breaking them and then racing his horses against other crow kids. When he was mm. eight years old, Joe's grandfather entered him into a horse race without a saddle or reins. He's like, just hang on. Yeah. Joe lost. But after that, <laughs> Joe got a saddle, reins, and won every race that he entered. <laughs> when he was not. If you can race without a saddle. Yeah. What you imagine can do what with... you can do with a saddle. Right. At least he wasn't really racing when he didn't have a saddle or reins. He literally just held on to the mane for dear life. Yeah, sure. When he was not training to become a young crow warrior, Joe was also attending traditional American school. Before 1904, Crow children were sent to United States government boarding schools that were often extremely far from their homes. There, they would be punished for speaking their language or practicing Crow traditions, and many children became sick and died. Mm -hmm. It was all about assimilation. Yep. They, you know, didn't want them to practice any traditions or culture. have any, yeah, like and didn't want them to be in touch with their culture. Mm -hmm. It was all about becoming an American and right. all of that. In 1904, the Crow elders of Lodgegrass asked the Baptist Indian Mission Board in Sheridan, Wyoming, to build a school in Lodgegrass so that the children could attend school and stay with their families. Hmm. The Mission Board agreed to build a school, but they would also build a Baptist church in Lodgegrass as well. Joe was raised by attending... More of that assimilation. Yeah. Gosh. But at least they get a school there so that Joe was raised by attending a Christian school and church while also being able to practice Crow traditions and religion. At his home. At his home. Not at school. Right. Yeah. Yeah, at school, the teachers, like, forced, Probably, him, to, forced him to speak English. He yeah. was basically beat I, for speaking Crow. Yeah, imagine the old, you know, ruler smack on the knuckles. Right. He said, like, as a small child. His, or maybe even worse. His first day at school, he basically was dropped off and... Uh, he would be talking, and the teacher would be speaking English, and so he'd be talking. He didn't know he wasn't supposed to talk, so the teacher would come over and shake him until he stopped talking and crying. Oh, wow. Yeah. That would be rough. And he he didn't know English, and so right. he didn't know what she was asking him to do. After attending the Christian tribal school for a few years, Joe's family was upset that he wasn't receiving an effective education, because the Baptist school was basically just a one-room like schoolhouse school where he was basically just beat for not speaking English. And right. that's basically all that happened at him to him at school every day. Yeah. And it's like, that's not an effective method for teaching. No. <laughs> so they enrolled him in the public school in Lodgegrass. There he learned English, math, and writing. In the evenings, elders of the tribe would come over to grandfather Yellowtail's home and tell stories for hours. Some were war chiefs that came to tell Joe about old war stories of Crow heroes and some were women that would tell stories about the tribe's history. Joe loved to sit and listen for hours at night, soaking in the history of his people. 
So because of racism, many Crow students went to boarding schools instead of attending the public high school in Lodgegrass. By the time that Joe was able to attend high school, boarding mm-hmm. schools had gotten way better. Mm-hmm. So it was actually more... Um, instructional. It was more instructional. Instructional. Um, it wasn't as scary as it was when he was like elementary school aged sure. for a native child to go to. Well, and at this point, you're probably, I mean, honestly, it's you've assimilated. Like, right. Like, you've been exposed to the culture and you kind of understand the expectations. And, right. Exactly. I mean, in all honesty, right? That's kind of... Yeah. That's just kind of how it was. That's the, the, the school served a purpose. Right. Um, so, instead of attending public high school, Joe attended Bacone in Muskogee, Oklahoma in 1929. There, he received his high school diploma in 1934 and then attended the junior college there and received his Associates of Arts degree in 1936. While there, he took part in several extracurricular activities, including several sports that included boxing and track. He made the honor roll, and one of his professors convinced him to enroll in a four-year college for his bachelor's degree. He was actually doing awesome when he went there. Yeah. He was like in all Imagine of what happens when we actually teach you instead of just beat you. Right? Like, <laughs> people are smart. People are intelligent. So Joe enrolled in Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and graduated in 1938, which made Joe the first male Crow member to receive a bachelor's degree. Hmm. The first female Crow to receive a bachelor's degree was Joy Yellowtail, who had graduated from a school in California a year earlier. Was that his cousin? I think they were related some yeah, way. Yeah, his mom was His Amy, mom was a Yellowtail. Yellowtail? Yeah. yeah. Joe had graduated with a bachelor's in sociology and psychology. Joe then enrolled in a master's program for anthropology at the University of Southern California. Joe graduated from USC with his master's degree in 1939, and his thesis was on the effects of European culture contact upon the economic, social, and religious life of the Crow Indians. Those thesis, they always they always got to have a real long title. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's like a, a tweet, except for they've got maximum minimum characters. Right, you know, yeah. Like a really high minimum number of characters. Yeah. <laughs> Earning his master's degree meant that Joe was the first Crow tribe member to ever receive a graduate degree. That's cool. That same year, Joe auditioned for a part in Errol Flynn's movie about General Custer titled They Died With Their Boots On. Instead, Joe was asked to be on the writing crew for the movie. Hmm. When asked by the director if Joe knew anything about Custer's last stand, Joe was like, well, actually, boy, I know let me a tell lot. You. Yeah, boy, let me tell you. I've got some stories. <laughs> yeah. So he started- Because he grew up listening to the stories his of- his grandfather was literally a scout for General Custer. Yeah. Like, you don't get much better oral history knowledge than that. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. So Joe starts telling the director all of these stories that he heard from his grandfather. Then he mentions that his grandfather said that Custer was foolish for attacking before reinforcements showed up, and that's why Custer lost. Well, the director didn't like that, and he became upset and told Joe that he was fired and to leave immediately. Oh, wow. Basically, because the movie was supposed to build up the public's confidence in U.S. troops as World War II was kind of looming on the horizon. Sure. Not to be like, oh, they make dumb mistakes and and they lose. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, okay, we don't want your take on Custer's last stand. Yeah. Get out of here. Which is horse horse poo. It is horse poo. 
It's like, that's like the best historian you're going to get. Right. First. And it's like just any of those movies. It's like based on a true story and then it's omitted like, because eh. it just doesn't make the story that they want it yeah, to, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. So Joe then started on his PhD program at USC, but that was cut short when the United States entered World War II. Yeah. Joe later Joe. said, my uncle had other plans for me. Uncle Sam, that is. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. This is a good quote. Joe went to enlist in the Army in 1941. While yeah. signing up, Joe was told that he could follow a path to become an officer because of his education. Though he told the recruiting officer that he would rather follow his grandfather's footsteps by starting as a young soldier and then working his way up through the ranks to a war chief. Joe later said that was the biggest mistake he ever made. <laughs> since the U.S. Army had very different rules to military promotions than the Crow Tribe. Right. He's like, oh, I should have started as a lieutenant and not a private. This <laughs> yeah. sucks. Yeah. Like, once he actually got into it. Yeah. yeah. He's like, I'm way too smart to be a private kind of thing. It's not necessarily that you're too smart to be a private because essentially everybody in the army needs to know those skills. Right, yeah. and that's true. <laughs> right, but I think he just kind of finally got but in there. Like, He's like, "Oh, this sucks." Yeah, yeah. I could have like, been a lieutenant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just militaries. Military and the way they treat rank is just it's it's interesting. Yeah. Joe's first job was as a clerk for the first couple years. Because he was smart, so they just mm. made him a paper pusher. Sure. Then, when America needed more foot soldiers to invade Germany, Joe was moved to the front lines. Joe made sure to bring a yellow-painted eagle feather that had belonged to a Shoshone Sundance chief and had been passed to him from his uncle. Before going into battle, Joe would place the feather inside of his helmet. He would also paint red war paint on his arms under his shirt. When he could not find red paint, he would use a red pencil. Joe credited his spiritual medicine in protecting him when an artillery shell exploded right next to him, killing about half a dozen of soldiers that were right next to Joe, and it knocked Joe off the cliff he was standing on. When he came to, he found that he was not injured except for a couple of bruises. Wow. During the Allies' big push into Germany from France, Joe was part of the 103rd Infantry Division as a scout. Now, the German-French border was heavily fortified with gun bunkers, trenches, moats, mm -hmm. other artillery, you name it, that was known as the Siegfried Line. Right. And the Allies had to break through that to get into Germany. That was, like, the main thing keeping them out of Germany. The objectives, yeah. During one battle, Joe's commanding officer told him to get a team of seven other soldiers to run up a hill that was covered in snow and barbed wire that was constantly being bombarded with artillery fire. Joe was to lead the other soldiers to an American-held position that had several boxes of dynamite. Once they got the dynamite back to the rest of the group, they would take that dynamite to Germany's pillboxes and blow them up. And that's how they would get through the line. Yeah. Before Joe left, his commanding officer said, Chief, if anyone can do this, it's probably you. And he called him Chief because, I mean, He's the idiot. times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that's also like... I guess it's kind of, like, supposed to be, like, a boost of confidence, but yeah. that's kind of disheartening. We're like, well, maybe you can do it. Yeah. yeah <laughs> this yeah. is gonna suck. Yeah. So, the soldier is staying back. But I don't know. There's something, to be, there's something to be said about that. Like, yeah. you just know, like, you just know the people that can do the job. Right? right. Yeah. Like, you think about work. Like, you think about a person, you're like, I mean, you don't call him chief nowadays, you know. <laughs> right. Bill... 
You're the you're the one who can do you're this. You're the one that can do this. Unfortunately, that task was running up a snow covered hill yes. that was constantly being bombarded with artillery. Yeah. To retrieve some dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> so the soldiers that stayed back started throwing smoke screen shells into the field, like on the hillside, so that Joe and his guys could have some cover. Mm-hmm. The Germans saw the smoke screen and they're like, okay, well, they're Something's doing they're doing something. Yeah. So they just start blindly lobbing lobbing mortar shells into the field. Joe and all of his guys safely make it to the dynamite. Each box of dynamite weighed about 50 pounds. Right. So Joe and the other soldiers each got a box of dynamite and then sat on it and started sledding down the snow-covered hill, like using the like dynamite boxes like a toboggan. Oh, my gosh. Because they were like... That's terrifying. Because well, they said the hill was just so steep, there was no way that they could do it, like... Running. Running down the snow yeah. with, like, with these heavy boxes, with their rifles, yeah. like, all that. They're like... He was, yeah. he was like, sit on it and let's go. <laughs> so... Uh, the Germans and the Germans are still lobbing. That is crazy. Yeah, the Germans are still lobbing mortar shells and Uh, hand grenades at the hill, but they all make it back with the dynamite safely. They're all alive. So, and another thing to consider is like, how much smoke did those people have? I can't imagine that the time it took to run up to this top of this hill, get the stuff, and come back. But they actually had enough smoke to provide smoke cover the whole time. Well, they like, said they just kept doing the smoke screens. Apparently, they had enough to keep it to keep it yeah. to keep it going. Okay, so that was a good thing. Yeah. Um. So they make it back with the dynamite. Um. They then use the dynamite to blow a hole in the Siegfried line that allowed the infantry to advance through. So they were successful. Nobody died, at yeah. least not from Joe's crew. Yeah. Joe received a bronze star for his bravery and completed his first coup of becoming a war chief, leading a successful war party on a raid. So I also read somewhere that there's a photograph of Joe leading the charge and jumping through the breach in the wall, but um, which would have made him the first American soldier on German soil, which would have been amazing. Oh. But I couldn't find any other sources to back that up. So there's only one source, and then I also couldn't find the photograph. Huh. So I don't know if that's true or not. Really cool if it is, but yeah, I wonder where we'd look for for that picture. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Probably the army historical. Yeah, I might just have to do some more digging. That would be a sweet photo. Right. <laughs> so Joe was able to go back to France for a couple months after that and get some R and R. He was then ordered to go back to Germany, and he crossed over the border into a small German village. He was supposed to approach the town from the rear like with his company, Mm -hmm. while other soldiers were approaching from the other side of town. Joe and his platoon started to make their way through a dark alley to get... His platoon or his company? So I think now the here's split up into a platoon. So the company came in, Mm -hmm. and then there's... Now they're split up into a platoon to go through this alley. Okay. Um, So they're going through the alley. Uh, It's super dark. And then Joe uh, sees a gate that leads to the main street. And so he... Decides to go towards the gate to see, to get a peek of what kind of fighting is going on in the main street of this village. So he's running towards the gate. Then all of a sudden, Joe runs head on into a German soldier that was coming from the other direction. The two crashed together and made the German fall to the ground. The German then went to go reach for his rifle and Joe kicked it out of his reach. Joe then jumped on top of the German and they start wrestling and punching each other. Joe finally gets on top of the German and starts choking him out. The German starts yelling, Hitler kaput, which means Hitler's done. Oh, yeah. And then he starts saying, 
mama, mama, and he starts crying. So Joe's like, okay, I can't kill this guy. He's crying and calling out for his mom. Yeah. And so he decides to just take him as a prisoner of war instead of killing him. Hmm. So now Joe has just completed two more coups. Yeah. He captured an enemy's weapon by kicking the rifle out and then, you know, eventually uh, taking it because yeah, he didn't yeah. give it back. Yeah. And touching an enemy without killing him. Mm-hmm. And also Joe not being injured. Mm-hmm. So now he has three out of the four, four coups to become a war, war chief. chief. Yeah. There's just one more coup left before Joe could become a war chief. He had to steal an enemy's horse. Oh. So now you're like, okay, but it's World War II. Like, yeah. There's not horses. How is but easy, there is. But there is horses. Yeah. They're just not that easy to come by. Yeah. Not as easy as, you know, before. Like, especially, you know, in the 1800s. Don't tell me they have Ford Broncos. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> well, first when I was starting to read the story, I was like, okay, does it count if he, like, steals a tank or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nope, it has to be an actual horse. It does? Yeah. In early 1945, Joe and the other men from his company were on a scouting mission behind enemy lines when they came upon a small farm that had about 50 SS officers staying there. There were also about 50 horses staying in a small pasture right next to the barn that the SS officers had ridden in on. When Joe's commanding officer met with platoon leaders to discuss their plan for attacking the farm the next morning at daybreak, Joe said, Sir, I think I should get those horses out of the corrals before we attack, because some of those SS guys might try to escape on them. It would only take me about five minutes or so. So at this time, Joe hadn't really been trying to complete coups, but then by this time, he's, he's, like a, by this time he's realized he's got three of the four, and his last one is literally to yeah, steal a horse, and he's like, is now or never. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah like, this is my opportunity. So, yeah, so he kind of speaks yeah. up. He's like, hey. Achievement uh, unlocked. Yeah, exactly. So he's like, hey, I should probably get these horses out of the way, yeah, right? So yeah. these guys don't escape. Yeah, like, yeah. what do you think about this idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but, I mean, he does have a... It does carry some merit. Though. I mean, like, it's not a bad idea. Because still. because you get rid of the way they they're going to get away, right? You, it's just like disabling their vehicles, right? Exactly. And it's like you just got fifty cars sitting there. Why not go disable them? Yeah. So all he's got to do is set forty nine of them free and take <laughs> one for himself. Yeah. So the commanding officer said, "Okay, chief," because it's still calling him chief. You're on. Joe and another soldier snuck into the corral. He told the other soldier, he's like, go stand at the gate. When I whistle, you open it and you get out of the way. So then Joe sneaks up to a horse. He's this really tall thoroughbred. He, like, makes a knot in his rope Mm -hmm. that he, like, used to, like, hold his bedding together. He slips it over the nose of the horse to make, you know, some bridle and reins. Then he tries to get on the horse. Well, it's this tall thoroughbred. Joe's not that tall and his boots are muddy. So he walks it over to the watering trough. Then he gets on the watering trough and then jumps on the horse's back. That's awesome. Then he whistles. The other guy opens the gate, gets out of the way, and then Joe lets out a a crow war cry, and all of the horses start stampeding out of the corral. Nice. Joe then gets in front of him and leads the horses to some woods nearby. He then hears gunshots going off back at the farmhouse. Joe rode back to help take the SS officers as prisoners while singing a crow praise song. (laughs) After leaving the farmhouse, his commanding officer let him ride the horse for about a mile before he told him that he better get down because he was making too good of a target. Hmm. Snipers or something. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. 
Near the end of the war, Joe was sent to Poland. While there, locals told him and his unit about a concentration camp nearby. Joe hopped in a jeep with his commanding officer and drove to the camp. As soon as the German guards saw them coming, he opened the gates of the camp to to them and they just drove in. I think the guy was like, oh, this is the end of the war. I'm just not. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to fight it. They don't pay me enough for this. Yeah. They were or met. anymore when they're being overrun. Right. They were met by a Jewish inmate wearing a green and white pajama-like outfit. SS officers immediately began to run away, but they were caught and the camp was liberated. Mm. Joe was discharged from the army on January 10th, 1946, along with what his- What camp was it? Uh, I didn't get the name. I should have gotten it, huh. but I didn't write it down. Hmm. Along with his bronze star, Joe also earned the French Legion of Honor. When Joe returned to Montana, a huge reception was held for him. Drummer sang the war honor song of Joe's grandfather, Chief Medicine Crow, and Joe danced. Joe was then asked to recite his war deeds. So, like, everybody's in this, like, you know, listening, like, all right, what did you do? Let's hear about about your stories. After telling his stories, Joe was declared a Crow war chief. Like, you did it, dude. You got them all. Yeah. Joe received a new name from his tribe, Highbird, and also received his own war honor song. The words of the song go, Highbird, you are a great soldier. Highbird, you fought the mighty Germans. Highbird, you counted coup on them. Highbird, you are a great soldier. In 1948, oh, wow. I know, it kind of yeah, gives you yeah, chills, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. In 1948, Chief Medicine Crow, which I'm just going to call him from now on because that's what he's now known by, because he's a war chief now. Chief Medicine Crow became the tribe's historian and anthropologist, which made him responsible for keeping the tribe's stories alive. He began to write down stories and collect photographs of people from his tribe. Chief Medicine Crow wrote several books, including Crow Migration Stories, From the Heart of Crow Country, and a children's book titled Brave Wolf and the Thunderbird. He actually wrote, like, a ton of books. I just chose, like, oh, yeah. three random ones yeah. to include. In 1951, Chief Medicine Crow started working for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. He became a founding member of Little Bighorn College and the Buffalo Bill Historical Center. Hmm. Chief Medicine Crow wrote a script that is used to perform a reenactment of the Battle of Little Bighorn that is held every summer in Hardin, Montana. He's like, oh, you didn't want me for this movie? Yeah, well, I'll guess just what? guess what? My script is now reenacted every single year. Yeah, that's awesome. Wow. Chief Medicine Crow would also travel to lecture at several universities and also lectured at the United Nations in 1999. Wow. Chief Medicine Crow received honorary doctorates from Rocky Mountain College in 1999, University of Southern California in 2003, where, you know, he was trying to get his actual doctorate before right. he went to war. Yeah, before he decided to go to... Yeah, yeah. and Bacon College in 2010. Wow. On August 12, 2009, President Barack Obama awarded Chief Medicine Crow the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian honor awarded in the United States. Mm-hmm. He received the award for the combination of his military service and all of his public work that he accomplished to improve the lives of the Crow people. Chief Medicine Crow led a ceremonial crow dance after the ceremony. 
Chief Medicine Crow died on April 3rd, 2016 in Billings, Montana at the age of 102. Yeah. He was... He was yeah. old. They said that his mom lived to like a hundred too. Oh wow! Yeah, that made him the last surviving person to have ever heard first-person oral accounts of the 1876 Battle of Little Bighorn. Yeah, and more than likely the last ever Crow war chief. Wow! The people don't believe. You know, it would have been hard to do all of those coups in World War II, right. which he amazingly did. Yeah, but for those to ever happen again, especially stealing an enemy horse. Now, yeah. it's next to impossible. Sure. Possible, but next to impossible. Sure. So they, you know, pretty sure that he's the last Crow War Chief. Right. My sources for the story are Counting Coup, Becoming a Crow Chief on the Reservation and Beyond by Joseph Medicine Crow. So it was like his, his first person. His first person account uh, of all of that. That's so cool. The War, Joseph Medicine Crow, a Ken Burns film. Badass of the Week, Joe Medicine Crow by Ben Thompson. <laughs> Medicine Crow Honored for World War II Service by Becky Shea. And The Last War Chief by Robin A. Ledoux. I just can't imagine, you know, he's like, you know, it's, it doesn't sound like he was like on a mission to become a war chief. And then it just kind of like. Happened. Yeah, I think he said mostly, you know. I mean, except for the stealing the horse. The stealing the horse yeah, is yeah, the one yeah. that he did on purpose. Yeah. He said mostly. But also, I mean, it had a very good tactical advantage. So it's not like it was like just the sole interest. Right. Well, he said, you know, going into the army, he had these big ideas of, you know, being a great crow warrior, maybe not necessarily becoming a war chief, mm -hmm. but becoming a great warrior. Serving and, like, his country. Serving his country. You pay, know. Pay a little bit. I, I don't know. This is kind of a slippery slope, but it's patriotism. I mean, kind of right. Yeah, to of an course, extent. Yeah. And like you said, representing the Crow Nation, right? You know, and he said when he, you know, and when he enlisted, he said that you know he's like, of course, you know, he thought about like becoming a war chief, just yeah. kind of like one of those romanticized things that, it a little bit. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But it was never one of those things that when he actually got into battle, that he was ever like okay, I have to do this, this, and this. Yeah. Especially those first three all just kind of got forced upon him. Sure. You like, know? out of necessity. Right, yeah. yeah. It just yeah. kind of happened, and yeah. he just kind of, and he just rose to the occasion. Yeah, yeah. That's so, cool. And it's kind of interesting. You know, I also think about his, the, his party raid and how he was going through the snow, and I'm like, wonder if all that snow training and that winter training and him oh, being he, named Winterman, like, yeah, you know, yeah. helped him. Oh, absolutely. Rise to the occasion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Learning how to move through snow. and Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's just like, I mean, it's just like being out in the outdoors all of a sudden. If you've never been in the outdoors, you're going to be totally out of your element and definitely not, you Right. Know. All right. Presidential trivia. Yes. How many presidents died while in office? Was I high or low? You were low. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So can I re-guess? Re you can re-guess. Six. Uh, low. What? It, it, it was eight. Eight presidents have died while in office. I wasn't. Why'd you say I was close then when I said four? Well, okay, because the only reason I said that was because there's been four presidents that have been assassinated while in office. Okay. So I was like, well. Yeah, yeah. You know, close. Uh, the presidents that died while in office were William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor, Abraham Lincoln, James A. Garfield, William McKinley, 
Warren G. Harding, mm-hmm. Franklin D. Roosevelt, and John F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. When you think about it, that's kind of a lot. Also, I think it's a lot that only four, like half of them were assassinated and the other half actually just died from other causes. Other causes. Yeah. I mean, maybe it seems like a lot to me that four of them died out of natural causes while in office. Other maybe causes. Not. Or other causes. Just call them other causes. Yeah. Because murder is natural, right? Well, we don't know if Warren G. Harding was murdered. Speculation. I think he was murdered. But that was never... Proven. Proven. Mm. And if you don't know what we're talking about, you can listen to our Sex, Drugs, and Warren G. Harding episode where we think his wife murdered him because he was sleeping around. (laughs) Yeah. He was... was, uh... She got a little spiteful. Yeah, he loved the ladies and couldn't keep it in his pants. Yep. But he was maybe also a murderer. Yeah, well, there were some women I mean, who died. It wasn't that like were... necessarily he murdered them. They were kind of, you know, they were like dancing and they hit their head, and they didn't necessarily. He didn't necessarily save their lives. He just kind of let them bleed out on his floor, and then he buried them in like the backyard of the yeah, White House. I don't think I would want to try and raise that defense that I technically didn't murder them he because I didn't. technically didn't, like, push them off the table. <laughs> it's manslaughter. Manslaughter. Uh, yeah. I guess whatever whatever you can do to live with your conscience, just remind I me mean, to never I, get I'm, on any tables around you. <laughs> saying it was manslaughter, which you could still go to prison for, but it wasn't, like, second degree or first degree. Where Warren G. Harding's wife was definitely that was definitely first degree. That was premeditated for sure. <laughs> she had tried to kill him before. <laughs> so if you like this podcast, we just ask that you tell somebody about it, your family or friends. Just spread the word. If you would like to know more about episodes, um, read some show notes, see kind of a timeline of when things happened, go to americathebazaar.com. That's where you can also find merchandise if you're interested in finding anything. Jeremy, do you have any updates for our listeners? I do. I uh, read an article recently about Buffalo soldiers and their importance during the fires in 1910. Um, Actually, up in Avery, Idaho, which is a couple hundred miles from here, because Idaho is a large state, uh, but up in the north, there were some Buffalo soldiers that had used a firefighting technique called like a burnout to help protect the town and essentially, you know, help save some property and lives. So it's kind of a, 1910 is kind of a historic year for Idaho and Montana as far as wildland fires go. So I just thought that was kind of cool. And a little update on... On our Buffalo Soldiers episode that you did. Very cool. Yeah. I don't think they took bikes to get there. Well, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let's hope not. Let's hope not. Well, no, actually, let's hope so, because I actually proved it was pretty pretty quick. But anyways, check out that episode if you don't know what we're talking about. Buffalo Soldiers on Iron Steeds. We hope you stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, stay, stay weird, America. America.